Hey everybody, welcome to the Family Jewels True Crime Podcast. This is Brian Sobolewski and I am walking you through the five-year period that my father, brother, and I robbed jewelry stores all over New England. Today is episode 16, The Interrogation Room. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad you guys are here. So glad to be able to present this to you because this has been a long time in the making. I think ever since I started um, even the idea of this podcast, this conversation that I am about to have with myself um, for you has been something I've been going over for a very long time. So it finally found the, I don't know what you would call it. I guess, I guess it's a voice because I've been, you know, I want to be able to portray for you in as much as possible the actual events that transpired. Now, of course, I can't give you the exact words that I spoke during this interrogation, um, but I can. I want you to get a sense of what it was like to be in that room and what it was like to be guilty as fuck in that room. And I want you to get a sense of what it was like to be manipulated by the police and see how they do what they do. Um, so I'm super excited to bring that to you because, again, it has been a source of anxiety for me because I didn't think I'd be able to bring it to life the way it deserved. And I think I did an okay job, and I hope you think so too. So to do that, we have to put everything in place and perspective for you because, you know, we're 16 episodes in here now. As you remember what I said in the last episode, this was the first time I had ever fallen in love. And just want to give you a little bit of background on Dawn. Um, I think, I'm not going to say her last name. Uh, but I met Dawn through a drug deal. She actually helped uh, my brother commit mail fraud when uh, my brother's girlfriend, Susan, mailed a bunch of weed up to Kevin because, of course... We were doing um, we were doing a robbery, and Kev couldn't live without his weed. And hey, I was sober, but uh, I I drove Kev to get this weed, and I drove Kev to get lots of drugs while I was sober my first year, because I knew why he needed it. There there wasn't um, I had enough empathy, and that that's different from sympathy, um, to know that he needed it. And uh, despite the fact that there was part of me screaming that he needed as much rehab as I had needed, uh, he needed to go to AA the same way that I did. He needed treatment. Uh, but regardless, um, so I, I went and, and met her during this mail fraud drug deal. And I fell in love, man. I thought she was the cat's. As my old friend Owen would say, he's from London, uh, she was the mutt's nuts. Um. And she had a daughter named Kaylee, I think. And she lived in Section 8 housing in Nashua. Um, and she was going to school um, to become an LPN, which is a... It's not a licensed nurse, is it? Licensed? And then the um, RN is the registered nurse. I don't know how they did it in New Hampshire, but the LPN was a two-year degree. So she wasn't able to prescribe drugs I don't think I don't even know if she could hand the patient drugs she was basically there to wipe up and uh, it paid really really good money and it was your stepping stone so you do two years then you can start working and then you can go another two years and get your RN and I think now in Massachusetts I don't I don't think you're doing much nursing wise without a master's so and that's the way it was in New Hampshire at the time 
So she was going to school for that, and she was also taking care of her very sick mother who was diagnosed with lung cancer. And in the final stages of, you know, figuring out what to do because treatment wasn't working. And she lived in a building directly across from us. Eventually, my sister will move in to this development um, that's a little bit later down the line. My sister is um, living with my mother in Epping, New Hampshire, in mom's house. Um, and I think this is where her boyfriend, Brandon, re-enters the picture. Of course, she'll text me later and correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I think that's why um, she ended up moving in to that building with him. And I think at one point she was pregnant. Um, anyway. Moving along, that is where Jess is. Jess is with mom and Kev is down in Florida. So I'm dating Dawn. I am working at BJ's Wholesale Club because that was a job that I always had when we started the robberies because I always wanted to have a paycheck that could at least somewhat justify the fact that I was driving a brand new Ford Bronco 2. I loved that truck. If I could resurrect any truck from my past, it would be my Ford Bronco 2 that I put the biggest tires that are allowable by physics, not by law. They had, you know, white raised lettering on the side. They were all-terrain radial TAs, and the knobs were so thick on the tire that when I drove it, you could hear it hum. So then, of course, I had to put in a new radio. I can't be listening to tires hum. So I put in this system in this <laughs> in this truck, and and a, another character that I have to introduce here that will be a, you know prevalent in this time is Mike Rosmack. Now, Mike Rosmack um, is the quintessential piece of shit you ever knew in your life. This guy was a snake. This is a man that could steal anything. I watched this guy walk into Steve's Quality Instruments in Danvers, Massachusetts, and walk out with a guitar that he stuffed the neck down his pant leg and threw his sweatshirt over it and he limped out of that store like it was his there wasn't a single time that i went into a mall or any retail establishment with this person that he didn't take something that wasn't his or pay for and he was a master at it because it mainly centers around once you go into that store and you take what you're going to walk out with you got to pretend like it's yours. And if every, anyone tries to take it from you, you have to pretend like you brought it there. And that's what he did. So one of the things that he used to do on a Sunday when we were bored and we didn't have any weed, uh, Mike would drive to a, a supermarket. So we would go to Market Basket. Market Basket. You ever been to Market Basket? <laughs> and on Highland Ave was the one we used to go, like to go to the most because, I don't know, he just thought the staff there was pretty lax and they had a huge meat department. So he would fill an entire shopping cart with meat. And he would have me walk around with without a basket. Just, you know, when do you ever see a person in a supermarket with very little in their hands? You know, unless they're going in to get one thing, but why would you go in a supermarket for that? You go into a convenience store. So I was trying to get the attention of or the suspicions of whoever might try to stop us, like the store manager or whatever, while Mike was filling a cart full of very expensive meat and he would just walk out the door with it. 
he would walk out in the same group of cashiers while everybody was bagging their stuff, and he would walk out like he was a regular shopper. You know, maybe he'd be in his wallet, you know, looking like he couldn't be bothered or wasn't even paying attention, glad he was done shopping, and he walked out the door. And he did it as naturally as, as if he was an employee doing it. It was crazy the way this guy could steal stuff. So he's important later on in the story, but at the same time as I'm talking about the Ford Bronco 2, he put the new stereo in my car, and let me tell you something, man, he taped down the wires. So whatever wires I had to go from the front of the car to the back of the car, he just taped them to my carpet. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you're kicking those wires around. At some point, I, I think I electrocuted my foot, and I had to go to a, I went to a legitimate car stereo installation place, and the guy looked at it, and he's like, dude, I, I got to start over here. He's like, I got to pretend like this never happened. And I said, I agree. He was basically looking at the chalk outline of a crime that had been committed in my car, my poor Bronco. So I had the job at BJ's to justify some of the things that I was walking around and spending my robbery money on. So I was a cashier there. And I kept the hours there once I started at Brookside Hospital as an intern, eventually I was hired there, like I said in the last episode, ended up being the best job that I've ever had in my life, mostly because I met some really cool people I'm still friends with uh, today, and it was a job that I felt uh, catered to a specific set of skills that I think I have. BJ's not so much. <laughs> BJ's I was just fast. They used to be able to, at BJ's, they used to be able to calculate how much money came through my cash register. So they used to put my name, oh, so embarrassing. They used to make me put a little gold champion cup, like a race cup, like if I won a, a race, a car race, on my register while I was working that said, um, number one cashier. It was absolutely ridiculous. It was the stupidest thing ever, but they insisted that I do it because every single week that I worked there, I was the number one cashier because I didn't talk to you. I didn't give a shit why you took, uh, you needed nine gallons of simple green um, or 18 pounds of pretzels. Uh, I just wanted you out of my face. <laughs> so I brought your stuff up to the register and I moved that shit through and I got you the hell out of there. That was my job, and that's what I did. You know, and eventually they were like, hey, bro, you should probably interact with some people. Not interested. So I'm working at uh, BJ's. I got the internship, and I have full-time school going on. Okay, so there, I have a lot of irons in the fire at this point, but it really was necessary to get Dad off my ass because Dad was blowing me up constantly, and that's why you, you see that I wasn't in Jacob II. Uh, that's why there were robberies that I didn't uh, avail myself for because I didn't want to do it anymore. And, and dad was relentless. So I had to fill every part of my day because dad would basically say, hey, can you do this on this day? No, I got school. Oh, what's after school? Oh, well, I got to work. Oh, what's after work? He just wanted me to be available and Jesus, after that, that story that I told you about him wanting me to steal that car at that ATM, man, I was not down. Um, and I was living there, so I had to be um, 
I had to be I had to be away. So that's the reason I had this many jobs. And that's part of the reason why I think Dawn was appealing to me. Because I really just started spending all my time with her. Any minute that I could. And she lived so close to the hospital. She was pretty central in Nashua to all the stuff that I had to get to. So that's where I was at. And Dawn, whew, boy, did I give her a lot of stolen jewelry. I gave her a ring. I gave her a bracelet. So so all of that, that that's the where everybody is at this point in the story. Just a quick recap. I got my sister is living in Epping, but... Uh, will very soon end up living very close to me. She'll end up practically being my next door neighbor. Kev's down in Florida still. Uh, Dad is away with Nancy. I am on my way to work at BJ's. And I get a phone call. And I don't answer it. I let the machine get it. Because I didn't. Uh, there was no call waiting back then. I couldn't see who was calling. I always waited for the machine to get it. Machine gets it and... Hi, Brian. This is Detective Richard Sprinkle at the National Police Department. I'd like to talk to you about the robbery that you reported. Give me a call at blah, 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 blah. Uh, anytime. Uh, hope to hear from you. Bye. Click. I don't think a thing of it. I don't want to talk to him about the break-in. I don't have any information for him. I don't know why he's calling me. I blow it off. I get to work. As soon as I get to work, my supervisor comes up to me and says, Bri, Detective Richard Sprankle has been calling here. He really wants you to call back. Here's his number. He's called two or three times. Can you call him? I say, sure. I go into the locker room. This is the only time that I was proud of that stupid little cup. I get it out. I put it on top of my register. I have no intention calling this detective back. Okay. So I'm 20 minutes into my shift. I'm moving people through BJ's, making sure they're getting home with their 40 pounds of pretzels. And I hear over the loudspeaker, Brian Sobolewski, you have a call on line two. Brian Sobolewski, I'm a cashier. I don't get calls at work, and they didn't like calls at work. Guess who it is? Hi, it's Detective Richard Sprinkle. Been trying to reach you. Been calling you a couple times. And told the people that when they gave you the message that I want you to call me back, why didn't you call me? Well, I was working. Ah, when can you come in? I want to talk to you about the break-in. I said, Detective, I really don't have anything to say about that. I came home and I found it and I reported it. You know everything that I know. He says, yeah, well, you know, there's a, there were a couple of break-ins around and uh, we have a couple of suspects, one particular kid who lives in the neighborhood, and I wanted you to come by to see if maybe you could identify him. That right there is where I should have said, no. Talk to my lawyer. Or something other than, okay. Because that was the hook. That that got me to think, hmm, maybe maybe they're not looking at us. I, I never suspected that they were looking at us for this robbery. Still, I was concerned that the sergeant thought or knew that people had been in our house during that break-in longer than they were supposed to be. And, and I had that whole discussion during uh, that episode. But it was a fleeting thought, and I had too much going on in my head, and I never thought of it again. So by the time I'm sitting there on the phone talking to a decorated detective of the Nashua Police Department, it didn't occur to me that that was just the hook that he was using to get me 
into the interrogation room. So I agree to go in. Boy, oh boy, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been thinking I'm an idiot at any point up to here, this is where I'm probably the dumbest. Now, I don't mean dumb. I mean that this is evidence that um, I am not, deep down in my heart, a criminal. And I think a criminal, Mike Rosmack, would handle this situation very different. And when he enters this situation, you'll see how he handled it. Because this just turns into a massive shit show. Unless you were thinking that, that this podcast was heading towards <laughs> a happy ending. Uh, spoiler alert. So I agree to go and talk to uh, Detective Richard Sprinkle at the Nashville Police Department. And I can tell you I've never been more nervous about anything in my life. Again, the whole the whole issue that I had with the insurance robbery was we were inviting the people that we hoped to never see into our house. I am now walking into the den, <laughs> walking into the lion's den of, of people I hope to never have any involvement with. And every time I have in my past, never turned out well. I mean, I've been arrested a decent amount in, in the, the town that I grew up in, in Peabody. I was arrested twice in a, I would say, a three-hour span. Twice. I was, uh, I had a suspended license. I was up all night partying my brains out. Um, the friends that I was hanging out with, uh, a boy and, they were a boyfriend and girlfriend, they started getting into a fight that was looking like it was heading towards a domestic issue which I knew they were cops because they were screaming and yelling and their neighbors were very close by. So I got up. I think I had passed out. I had been drinking. I get up. I go into my truck and I didn't have any gas in the truck. I mean, that's where I was at. I was sitting in my Bronco and that's the point in, of my life I was at in my addiction where there's no gas in my car. I have no money. I have no credit. I have no way to fill this thing. So I'm pretty stuck. So I go into the truck thinking I'm just going to hang out in the truck and sleep here. And I recline myself two seconds later knock 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 cops so i wasn't driving yet um because i was in the car when he took my license and it was suspended um they arrested me possible i had a warrant out too but um whatever i had a reputation there so whether or not it was against the law i'm sure i wasn't pleasant to the officer while we were um discussing my issues and I get arrested, put in the back, off to Peabody Police Station, which I love. Very nice police station, right below Higgins Junior High School. Uh, very comfortable slabs of steel to lay on. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, they gave me a blanket that I just rolled into a pillow. I was happy as a pig and shit. To be honest with you, that's exactly what I wanted to do in my Bronco. So you just transported me to another room that I was going to do exactly what I did. I kick back, I sleep for probably two hours before um, my sister and mother show up to bail me out. And I don't know, man, I don't know where my head was at, but as soon as I walk out of the police station, I say, bring me to my Bronco. And of course, the 10-minute the ride to my Bronco, because it was right behind Peabody Square, <laughs> um, my mother's arguing me. No, you're not going to drive. I'm like, I just got to get to the highway. Once I get to the highway, I'll get up to New Hampshire. I'll straighten all this. Stuff. You know, yada, 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 yada. 
all the bullshit lies. And as soon as I get to my Bronco, I get in it, I start it up, I drive it 10 feet, and boop, I get the blues behind me. I mean, I think it was the same cop. And I think he basically sat there, probably bored on his shift, thinking, there's no way that stupid asshole is going to go home, <laughs> going to go back to his Bronco and try to drive it. So he was not far from me. I, I would wager he either saw me very quickly because he was in the area or he sat there and waited to see if <laughs> Brian Sobolewski was going to be brazen. I don't even think it's brazen. That's just stupid. So I'm arrested again. So I have a little bit of reputation and I've been arrested before. And this also adds to the anxiety that I'm feeling walking into the National Police Department. Our arch enemy. I don't know. I don't even think I, I thought of him that way. I certainly didn't look at the police, and I certainly don't look at the police now as enemies in any way. I, I do not feel like I have any conflict with anybody. I felt as if, you know, these people, this is a building dedicated to finding and eradicating me. So... I think I've set the stage of anxiety for you pretty adequately. Now, I go into the to the you know lobby, and they call Detective Sprankle. And I'm sitting there for, I don't know, two or three minutes, and he comes down. Dude's built like a Boston Terrier on steroids, if you, if you can picture that. Like, just, he's little... Um, but he's got some heft, he's got some bulk. You could see that, uh, you know, he could probably, you know, this is a person with a very low center of gravity, so it's going to be very difficult to take this person down. I mean, that that's just the way I think when I meet somebody, especially somebody that poses a threat. Like my brother, you look at my brother and you're like, Jesus, this guy's huge. You know, I think like Batman in the Justice League. You know, I got to have a file on how to take this dude down. So Sprinkle is... Shakes my hand. He says, you know, we we got a couple of suspects. Thank you for coming in. Why don't you come on upstairs? We got a photo lineup for you to look at. You know, this kid has been trouble before. So, geez, I'm, you know, the anxiety is easing. I'm like, okay, hey, somebody else is going away for this insurance robbery, man. Woohoo! Um, bring me down this hallway past all the little, you know, cells, the holding cells that they have, and up a little elevator and into an office that is no bigger than a walk-in closet. It's got a little tiny desk. It's got a folding chair that he's sitting at. I get a folding chair, and that's pretty much it. I mean, come on. At this point, everybody's seen an interrogation room. There's a, you know, you're not calling better homes and gardens and finding out what tchotchkes you want to put on the table in your interrogation room. There's nothing in it. There's got to be a psychology to that. So we sit down, and there's the very typical yellow legal pad and a pen. And he sits down, yeah, you need anything, Bray? No, I don't need anything. Yeah, we got soda, we got coffee, we got water, anything you need. No, I'm good, detective. Thank you very much. He says, yeah, so, you know, we've been trying to figure out uh, what happened, uh, at, at your house? And I said, well, what do you mean you've been trying to figure out? You told me you had a suspect. He says, yeah, but you know, you know, some things don't really seem right here. And boom, this is exactly, I think this is the point that my cheeks clench. 
because I realized that I'm not there to see a photo lineup of anything, because as I told you, the only thing that was on that table was a legal pad and a pen. So there was no photo lineup. There certainly wasn't anywhere for him to retrieve a stack of photos, like a little file, like the Sobolewski break-in file that he is now compiling with notes about this potential suspect that he has that he doesn't. Shit. I'm getting nervous now, because that freaked me out once, once this different line of questioning started. He says, well, you know, it's funny because uh, the neighbors report seeing you carrying stuff out of the house. I was like, me? You out of your mind? Well, I live there. And depending on what something you're talking about, it could be a bag of groceries or it could be my laundry. What do you mean, neighbors reporting? Well, you know, they said that, that they saw you robbing the place. What? What? I, I, so I instantly, and the game was ease me. Ease me with the idea that we're asking you to come in here to help uh, frame somebody else or blame somebody else for this insurance robbery that you guys claimed. But I'm sitting there now being questioned now i should have in my mind been thinking geez this is the point where he's gonna try to find out why people were in there so long that sergeant that kept saying oh the people were in here such a long time and i said well i couldn't have done this uh you know i, 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 I why would i do this i mean what what would i have to gain from this i'd get arrested as soon as i tried to to sell any of this stuff he says, yeah, um, well, you know, maybe you sold it to, to buy drugs. And I was like, what? Uh, no, I'm sober. And boom, there was it. That, that was the, I think, that was one of the blows that you know the only way you're going to end up winning any, of, any more of this fight is to take the least amount of damage. You are not in a position now where you're going to be offensive. He's got me defensive. And he's like, you're sober? I said, yeah. He goes, what What'd you used to do? I said, what do you got? I said, my drug of choice was more. He says, how long have you been sober? I said, I don't know, almost a year. I think at that time I was close to a year. He says, uh, what else? What, what, what drugs did you do? Did you do weed? I said, yeah. He says, uh, did, you do, did you do cocaine? Acting as if he's uh, never heard uh, or been in front of anybody that had done these things. And I says, yeah, I used to do cocaine. He's like, uh, oh, what about the heroin? You do the heroin? I said, no, I didn't like that stuff. Oh, okay. And he said, well, uh, you, you must have pissed some people off while you were out there doing that stuff. And I said, you know, normal amount. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, that I am right now 10 minutes into a conversation that I should have ended with. I would like to talk to a lawyer or have one present during questioning. But now I am being questioned without representation. So my lesson, ladies and gentlemen, to anybody listening right now, even if you're innocent, that you shut your fucking mouth.
That is what I walked away from paying lawyers <laughs> thousands of dollars because everything you say is being used against you. And as you are going to hear in a phone call that I have with dad, how much of the stuff that we did was misreported. And I mean completely wrong factually. Now, how you get stuff wrong in the media when the cops have rats telling you exactly what happened. How do you get deep? So you are going to hear in the phone call that I'm about to play for you, which is amazing, that the Jewel Mart murder robbery, in the article that I read at the end of that episode that talks about the guy that killed Woody, it says that a woman was suspicious and wrote down James Ronco's license plate number when he drove away. That is not true. What happened was, after James Ronco shot Woody in the head, a woman walked in and was there to pick up a jewelry repair that he had done. And James Ronco came out and said, Oh, well, Woody just you know took off for a couple minutes. I'm his friend. He told me to watch the store for you. Why don't you come back in 10 minutes? And Woody will take care of you. The woman left. And then she became suspicious. So I'm bringing this up and you're going to hear it in the call because the media flat out incorrectly reported facts. The facts of the case that weren't difficult to find. That's what I'm talking about. It wasn't like they didn't dot an I. They came up with a, or had a completely different version from the truth. So, this is why uh, you you have to be careful because things that you say will be distorted and anybody that's posted on any social media and taken any flack for that and, and had no intent at all, you know, commensurate with the ire that's coming back at you, the anger from the people, like, you shouldn't have said that. Well, I didn't mean to say it. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. Uh, you can't say that in court. And once you start saying that shit to a jury, they, they think you're they think you're guilty. Now, I'm guilty as sin sitting in this interrogation room. So you have to understand that now I am second guessing my guesses and second answering his questions to what does he want to hear? And, you know, of course, my brain is... I'm not a stupid person. He asked me a question. Did you rob something? My brain, yes. <laughs> the correct answer pops right up. Sorry, it's a default setting. If I have the correct answer, that's the first thing that pops up. So now I have to set that aside and come up with an alternate answer that I'm not going to trip over later. So you understand that the two seconds that I'm sitting in this chair going through all of this, I'm also being measured by a person who knows how to tell when somebody's full of shit. So you must have pissed some people off while you were out there doing drugs, he says. I says, yeah, I've pissed a couple people off. And he wants a name. Well, who? Where, where'd you hang out? I grew up in Peabody. Boom, another mistake. I just gave him an entire zip code of people to go down and start questioning. Do you see, do you see what he's doing here? Do you, do you see how he's extracting information from me? that I'm not intending to give, that I don't think is a big deal, but ends up becoming a really big deal, because it did. So my brain is viciously shuffling through 
um, potential answers to his questions, and he wants a name. Mike Rosmack. I don't know. I don't. I honestly, at this point in in the conversation, I'm not entirely sure how he came up. But I gave him a name. Now that name goes down onto that legal pad, and that person's getting called. So he starts saying, uh, "Well, maybe maybe Mike Rosmack robbed the place." And I said, "Well, that'd be pretty fucking dumb if he did that." He says, "Why?" He says, "I don't know. It just would be stupid. You know, we would know it was him. Why? Why would he do that?" And he says, "Well, curious because." Uh, a couple of the neighbors also said that they saw your brother. I was like, what? No, they didn't see my brother. Oh, well, and, and understand that as this detective is investigating Sobolewski, you do a you do a search for Sobolewski, Kev's down in Florida because he's got warrants. I mean, he's, he's a habitual offender, DWI. That's why he went to Florida. So Detective Sprinkle already knows my brother is already looking for my brother and would like very much to know where he is. So he throws out that, I think your brother robbed the, the house. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I'm like, no, because Kev's not in New Hampshire. Oh, shit, Bri, shit. <laughs> As I'm reliving this conversation with you guys, I am freaking out at how stupid I was. I said, well, he's just not in the state. Okay, and then I, I realize I'm, um, I'm in trouble, right? You guys see it. I was in the chair. I was, you know, probably a little later than you guys, but I'm like, shit, I got I to gotta get out of this. I got to get the hell out of here. I said, it wasn't my brother. He says, well, all right, well, let's go back to you did it. You take a lie detector? I said, absolutely. He says, you take a drug test? I said, absolutely. We wrap up this interview, ladies and gentlemen, and I leave. First thing that I do is I go and I call my dad. I knew what hotel he was staying at. Again, this is in cell phone. This is in cell phone land. Uh, there was a 7-Eleven in between the National Police Department and my dad's condo on the way, and I stopped there to get to the payphone. I call. Wherever in the Caribbean, my dad's chilling out. Honestly, don't know where he was. Um, but I call the hotel. I leave him a message. I leave the number and tell him to call me right away. Hotel gets him, calls me right away. Hey, son, what's going on? Dad, I just had a horrific interview with Detective Richard Sprankle of the National Police Department. Oh? Well, we knew that was coming. We did? I didn't. This guy's been hawking me. This guy has been stalking me like I become <laughs> his high school sweetheart. He says, I wouldn't worry about it, son. They're just doing their job. I said, well, wait till you hear what transpired. And I started talking about it. He said, oh, son. You should have just said that you didn't know anything. I said, well, I didn't. And now I'm pretty sure they're going to haul Mike Rosmack in. And question him. What do we do? And I get. 
Let me think about it, son. I will see you Saturday when I get back. Don't worry about this detective. I'm sure he's going to pull me in too and ask me some questions. Um, I'll go in. I'll answer the questions. This is just a typical insurance investigation, son. Don't worry about it. I'm like, Dad, this is heat. We don't need. We got to get rid of this. Son, relax. Go home. Have a wine. Chill out. Have a wine. I'm sober. I hang up with him. And I end up going to Don's. And I'm just geeked out of my mind. Just so spent. The only way I can describe it is just... If you think of the end of your nerves, the very just endings of your nerves just fried. (laughs) Here's the dichotomy. I am now in the net. I am now on my way to a place that I'm pretty sure I can't survive. I'm pretty sure I'm going to fucking prison. And and that, that is what the back of my brain is starting to calculate a, a way to cope with that, number one. Number two, I'm in love. I have a career. I am starting something that people are paying me to do that I also love. And that is is where those two worlds are going to end up colliding And literally tearing me apart. Because giving up that job at Brookside Hospital because of all of this and eventually having to give up my life as any type of therapist or being in any type of environment like that on that level because of my felonies I couldn't. um, That's where this started. So it's it's just a lot. It's just a lot to deal with. So, we bring my brother up because this is not good. And we bring him up because Kev was very friendly with Rosmack. They were friends. Mike Rosmack, I don't remember him growing up, but I do remember him being on the fringes as I was in my late teens. So, I think he grew up in Salem. His dad eventually owned a construction company that eventually he moved to Dover, New Hampshire. And Mike and Kev bonded like just two apes meeting for the first time would. Both were the same size. And I think that's why or that was my appeal and why I hung out with Rosmag as opposed to Kev because it wasn't Kev. It was a version of Kev that you could actually talk to. But at the same time, you could talk to him while he was jamming you know, $150 jeans down his pant leg because he just couldn't not steal. So it was just a very difficult, well, what do you do with Mike? (laughs) Where do you hang out with Mike when you go and, you know what I mean? Well, be prepared to run if you have to when we get busted for him stealing something. But that being said, Kev and Mike were thick as thieves. Good friends because they had a lot in common. Now, Kev comes up because um, we're planning another robbery. And we have to deal with this uh, Rosmack situation because Sprinkle wants to talk to him. And we very much would like to know what Mr. Rosmack intends to say to him because Mike knew everything. Mike knew everything we were doing. 
And, and, you know, whether it was from me or it was from Kev, I don't know. Probably both. You know, just it's... I can tell you that I used to tell people because I love the shock value. I still love the shock value of it. And I used to tell people because I wanted to see their reaction because I wanted to know what a normal reaction to hearing that was. Because I don't know that I had a normal reaction when the first time my dad asked me to do this stuff. I just don't know that I was programmed. I certainly wasn't programmed to say no. Right? Anybody with morality or whatever it takes for you to be presented with the, the opportunity to commit an armed robbery with your family, whatever it takes to say no to that, I clearly didn't have. My brother clearly didn't have. The the ability to say no to continued armed robberies. <laughs> Neither one of us possess that skill. So, Kev is home because we're planning the Littleton robbery. And we got to take care of Mike. Now, Mike is called in to Detective Sprinkle. And Kev and my dad go to meet Mike at... Um, Cafe Escadrille in Burlington, Massachusetts. Oh my God, I can't believe that place. It's inside the Howard Johnson's. If it's even a Howard Johnson's now, I don't know, but it's right off of Route 3. Um, or the junction of Route 3 and 128. At the end of Route 3, down in Burlington, that's where it is. Near the Burlington Mall. That's where we used to meet Beat uh, Bill all the time. That was a regular meeting place of the Sobolewski gang, as the Boston Herald used to like to call us. Um, I like crew. I like Sobolewski crew. Right? Sounds a little better than gang. So they meet him there. And they dad just wants to, you know, dad pays him. <laughs> I found this out after. Dad pays him five grand. Five grand of our money had to go to Rosmac so that he wouldn't go in to Detective Sprankle and get freaked out like I did and give up a name like I did. Sorry, man, I got trapped. I sound like I feel like such a I do. I feel so stupid from this. But again, I hope it proves to you my lack of criminality. Um, they pay Rosmac five grand. And what's hilarious is that, according to Kev, uh, at the end of this meeting, Kev and Rosmac go to the bathroom and they're taking a whiz, and Rosmac pulls out a recorder. He was wired up. He recorded the whole conversation. That's Rosmack. You know, I, I applaud Rosmack. I, I I applaud him for covering his own ass, but he had five grand in his pocket. Gave the tape to Kev. To, um, brilliant strategy. Brilliant. Rosmack is listening. Bravo. So Rosmack is paid off, but Sprinkle is not uh, off our radar. Not only were we still on the radar, um, Sprinkle still wanted to talk to my dad. So when my dad got back from that vacation with Nancy, his first appointment or first thing that he had to do was go meet with Detective Sprinkle. Now, I play in a previous call, probably two or three episodes ago, that my dad says that when he went to this meeting, if he had gone to that meeting with a pillow underneath his shirt, Sprinkle would never have continued to suspect us. That's incredible. That The unmitigated amount of ego. That's like... Like, my dad is literally the Inspector Clouseau of, of crime. 
he's actually intimating that if he had gone in and made himself look fatter, because all of the descriptions of him were a tall, thin man, that that was just going to be too much of a smoke screen for Detective Richard Sprinkle to, to see through. Like that, that is the brilliance I am dealing with in this situation. That is, but that, that's the ego I think at that point my dad had with what we had gotten away with. Him sitting in front of a cop was no big deal as if at some point, unbeknownst to us but known to him, he was going to have to have this meeting. So he'll tell you in the call that I'm about to play that he went to this meeting and he just said, I don't know what you're talking about and the meeting was quick. And I do remember him going to that meeting and doing exactly that. And Rosmack went into that meeting and and Rosmack didn't give anything up. So, you know, kudos to Rosmack for saying solid. But I'm going to play you this call. And in this call, Dad, uh, Dad and I get into a conversation about what, uh, how ridiculous it is that there's this belief out there or that, you know, solid criminals and cons hate people that rat. And I point to the fact that right now, Sammy the Bull Gravano, who ratted on the uh, on Gaudi, is doing a podcast. I mean, he ratted everybody out, was in, in the witness, witness relocation program for a while, until, you know, until organized crime had been stomped out enough that he didn't feel he was a threat, and he comes out and he's on a podcast. I mean, that's a rat. Now, if everybody out there was so dead against rats, Sammy the Bull Gravano would have three listeners. Right, because that—that's the badge of honor you wear if you're anti-rat, and it just—it's such bullshit that Dad and I talk about, you know, go a little bit back and forth about how stupid that is. Everyone sitting in prison right now gave something or someone up to get a reduced sentence, and again, not all rats get off scot-free. None of them. But I'm going to tell you right now that there's not a single person in this audience, including myself. That if you were looking at 25 years in prison, you wouldn't get on a little perch and start swinging your sweetheart, singing your sweetheart out. There's just, it's just, I'm sorry. Saving your ass is, in, is embedded in your central nervous system, your fight or flight response. And prison, there's no, there's just no good outcome uh, of looking down the barrel at a 25-year bid. So I would wager most people, in an effort, it's just common sense. So that person that doesn't rat, I say in the call that there's probably really a, less than 1% of any prison population of people sitting in there that didn't talk, right? There are some really solid people out there that, that go away, not only for, uh, what do you call it, like, you know, fail to testify, um, that actually will sit in prison for any length of time before they decide, no, I'm going to start singing. I'm just making the point. Now, I was given the opportunity down the road, you'll hear about later, and I'll do a podcast about the second time that I was in that interrogation room, and I was given the same offer. You'll hear in the call that I didn't take it, because it's just weird. At Christmas would have been weird with, with Dad and Kevin. I don't usually spend it with them anyway. It's just a joke. But at the same time, I had no interest in... in um, given up my family to save my own ass. It's just, uh, I didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to face somebody like Rosmack after that. 
You know what I mean? It's just, you don't ever want to be labeled a rat, but at the same time, um, my God, it's not, it is not hard for cops to convert people into, um, into evidence. So that's the point I, I make in the phone call. And then we go in, dad talks a little bit about Groton and I talk about literally my true feelings about what life growing up with my dad on, on weekends as a divorced parent. Not only this house that he's talking about, did we drive around at night and break into construction um, sites and steal what we needed. One, one time we went in, we, stealed a sh we stole a shitload of lumber. Another time we went in, uh, we went into a granite yard and we stole a bunch of stuff that he ended up building his walkway with. So that the two station wagons that you're going to hear my dad talk about that he had, you know, he had a company car that was usually a big boat of a Buick or a Caprice or something that he always drove around in super nice luxury car. And then he had two, he had um, a station wagon. It was just a 2.0 cylinder Chevy something or other. And he loaded the hell out of that thing with everything that we stole at, at construction sites. So everything that the, the most of Groton was built with stolen material. And that's why my dad just has such affection for that house and that whole situation. Because literally we, we poured the foundation for it, capped it. Any major work like building the beams or any, you know, anything like that was done by a construction company he shelled out for. But any of the finishing work we stole, we stole that. I think we used a piece of city curbing to do the the seat, what the little hearth of his fireplace. He had a massive fireplace in the in the living room in Groton. So he talk, he chats a little bit about that in this call, and then we go into a conversation about Kev and how many different cars my brother has crashed. And I go over the list. I read it for Dad. And, you know, again, the, the audio quality of these calls just isn't the best. This call recording thing, no matter which version of it I use, for some reason the, the, it crackles here and there a little bit. So I try to produce a really, really clear call. But keep in mind, I can't call my dad back and say, let's do it again. And I've edited enough out of these calls of stuff that you just don't want to listen to, I'm sure, to just kind of get to the, to the stuff that's good. So, um I'm going to play this call for you of me and dad talking about all the cars. And then the call sort of wraps up with um, dad talking about his infinity. And I, I've gotten to the point now where I'm starting to call my dad out on his ridiculousness. My dad talks about how his four-year-old infinity QX blah, blah, blah is highly sought after. Like dealers are calling him saying, geez, we really want that because people want to, want to come in and get a new one. But I mean... That, in a nutshell, is what dealers do. So dad is taking that in the literal sense that, oh my God, his car is in high demand. He's got a 2018 QX whatever that in his mind is just sought after by collectors. Like, like you're watching, someday you will watch American Pickers and, and Mike and the fat guy will unearth a 2018 Infinity and sit there and bargain back and forth for it at some point i am calling it here folks so dad's going to talk about that by the end of the call and then i'll pop back on to talk to you about some really cool new information that i learned about our second episode the jewel mart murder um, which basically will call into question every single newspaper article you have ever read so i will be right back guys stay tuned else i can help you with my son 
No, I'm just gearing up the next episode. I'm going to talk about Sprinkle. <laughs> that piece of shit. I, I don't know. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, boy, he was... Uh, I don't know if he got as much credit as he had hoped in taking you down. No. He ended up in California. Doing what? I don't know. Being a cop, I guess. He transferred? Yeah. Why? I have no idea. don't care. How'd you find out that he transferred? I heard it somewhere. I, I forget what the hell I heard it, but uh, I heard the name out in California. He's out there. Uh, I, I think he's kind of higher up in the police uh, pecking order. The one that got me was his partner, whose name escapes me. He was really something to behold. Why? I don't know. He just rubbed me the wrong way. So when you sat down with Sprinkle, you were with him and his partner? Yeah. What'd they ask you? Everything. Right? Yeah, I just kept my nose. I don't know how you're talking about. Yeah. No, he shook me up pretty good, man. They they put the screws to me pretty good. Well, they figured you young. Maybe you, maybe you were the weakling. Uh, that turned out not to be true. <laughs> Yeah, we still got taken down, man. Yeah, you know, what are you going to do when someone uh, drops a dime on you? You save their ass. Desperate moves. It's funny because I'm slowly starting to to develop a comedy bit about how ridiculous it is that anybody hates somebody that raps because in most situations, most of us would. And most of us are. At this point, you have Sammy Gravano. He's got his own podcast. (laughs) I know. I've seen it. You know what I mean? So it's like you can be a rat now, and but everyone's like, oh, rats suck. Well, 99% of the people that are sitting in prison right now ratted somebody out to get themselves out of shit. If you don't think that you would rat, fuck you. Once the screws are put to you, man, you'll start singing like crazy. The reason I didn't rat is because it would have made Christmas weird for us, I think. Uh, statistics say that if it wasn't for informants, they would not solve 90% of the cases. Right? It, it's uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. No, so it's very believable. They also said that if everybody kept their mouth shut, you'd bury the system. Right? So yeah. I, I there's probably maybe five cons out of the six million that we have, have put away that have kept their mouth shut. Oh, I don't know. There's there's a few I met that are real stand-up guys. Solid, right? solid cons, but there weren't yeah. many, man. There, there weren't, weren't many. There weren't many. My favorite was, uh, uh, the hell was his name? Nason. Julio Nason. That guy is a collective for the mafia. A huge guy? No, he was Italian. He used to be a cook in culinary. And, man, could he cook. He could take crap and throw it into ambrosia. And all I had to do was make coffee for him because he liked the way I made coffee. And he would cook anything I asked him for. Lucky you. I almost came out of there overweight. How the hell do you do that in prison? Oh. Uh. I don't, I don't know. You're, you're a good fella. <laughs> That's me. Henry Hill. Yeah. yeah. I could watch that movie a hundred times. Yeah, I get sick of it after a while. No, I like it. Especially Pesci. What a, what a job he did. No, I, I got to tell you that that at this point, I, I the realism, Goodfellas is a pretty pretty realistic because it's mostly a true story, but like I said, I think I told you this Angelina Jolie movie. I'm watching it, and the pros are killing people left and right in, like, soccer mom neighborhoods. Did I tell you? 
<laughs> no, you didn't tell me that. Oh, okay, so I'm, wa- I'm watching this movie with Angelina Jolie, who's just too beautiful to ever be believable in any role, but she's she's playing like this this forestry firefighter. Okay. The ones that go out and battle the, the yeah. fires that most people wouldn't battle. Like, it's just not believable, but at the beginning of it is this subplot where these hitmen are going around to these rich neighborhoods and killing everybody in the house, and not, neither one of these killers have silences. Oh, Jesus. So that's just, that blows it for me. I'm like, well, if they're professionals, you're in a soccer neighborhood. The likelihood that somebody's going to hear a gunshot and be able to make it, you know, it sounds pretty distinct. At 9 a.m. on a Wednesday, I, I think you're pretty screwed. Not necessarily. Let me educate you. If you use a subsonic small caliber, which is very popular with the hitmen, you can hardly hear it, right? A subsonic away. small caliber. These guys had nines. Oh, then, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's right. Why, that's why the mob used to like uh, to use 22 caliber. They used to use sunk lead uh, bullets, and they'd hit the guy behind the ear if they could, or anywhere in the head. It made very little noise, very, very little noise. He could shoot it anywhere. That's amazing. It is. And then I piece of information. One, my buddy there, Michael Cram, he was the ex-Marine recon. He used to run up to Canada twice a year and load up on pills, come back into this country and sell them. And as a uh, sideline, he used to make special ammunition for the mob, uh, poison bullets, explosive bullets, anything they needed for a particular hit. Awesome work, if you can get it. It's it's a very, very <laughs> narrow <laughs> uh, yeah. creativity. Not uh, a lot of people saying, ah, tomorrow I retire <laughs> from making bullets for the mob. Five years, I'm getting a gold watch. You know what they used to use for poison? Garlic. Really, why? In a well of those, apparently if it hits... Uh, in its pure form, it's a poison to your system. It will kill you. Um, well, the Iceman used to just go into um, into a bar and put, put spill cyanide on you. There you go. Another thing he told me is if you had, uh, what the hell is that heart medication? When you have a heart attack. Uh, nitroglycerin? Nitroglycerin. If you put that in liquid form, say, on a Band-Aid and put it, on a guy's neck, he would die of a heart attack. Yeah, it's absorbed through the skin. Right, but wouldn't they find the Band-Aid residue? you got to take the Band-Aid yeah, off, otherwise you're busted. Well, here again, I don't know. He says if you want to kill a guy very quietly and very permanently, that's what you do. And he didn't say, but make sure you get the Band-Aid. Get the damn band <laughs> Just good advice, man. See how? See where my brain goes, though? I'm like, no, that's not going to work because you got to get the Band-Aid. <laughs> You should work for CSI. I really should. So hopefully, man, somebody from CSI will, will need somebody to just sit and listen and be able to bullshit back with you. Um, but that's it. Okay. Uh, um, okay, so that was that call. Hope you enjoyed that. And the next call, I'm going to play snippets of a call that I talked to my dad about the second robbery. So my intent was and is to call dad now and go over all of the previous robberies 
So I put some content in episode one where I called dad and we talked about the very first robbery. And I am going to add, I think I already added to episode two, the stuff that you're going to hear now. And the stuff that you're going to hear now is, is super interesting because this entire time that I have had the article about the Jewel Mart murder, and if you haven't listened to it, I don't know why you're on episode 16. You should be listening to episode 2. And in that, where, where Woody is killed by what was presumably his best friend, and I read the newspaper article at the end of the podcast, um, we learn that the woman who called in a suspicion of uh, a license plate that was suspicious around the Jewel Mart after he was shot that I always was suspicious of. That wasn't the, what happened. The woman actually walked in after he was shot and to pick up a repair. And she didn't like the situation. She didn't like that James Ronco was in there and, and Woody was in the back dead. And, and she called it in as suspicious. Now, that is not what the media um, reported. That is not in any part of the article that I read to you. So that fact was wrong. And I say in this, this conversation with my dad, I mean, imagine how many other things, because there were multiple things that they reported about my family in all of the newspapers that were incorrect. And I'll tell you that the Globe was worse than the Herald. Or is it the other? No, the Herald was worse. So the Herald was worse because the, um, the Globe just would only put little tiny snippets of, of our situation in their paper. But the Globe reported on us a lot. So any newspaper article that you see me post on any of the Family Jewels podcast social media is an article probably from the Globe. And there's they, they misspell my name. They call my grandmother at one point Teresa. I mean, her name is just incorrect. And there are multiple facts that they reported about us that were wrong. And in this James Ronco article, which had nothing to do with us, which had to do with a murder that happened in Seabrook, New Hampshire, a week after we were in that store, and they get the facts wrong. So I got I to gotta call into question how much of a newspaper that you have read your entire life, there have been a significant number of mistakes in there. So, you know, it takes bad crime reporting to, to bring to light that the media, does, though that particular paper didn't seem interested in fact-checking enough to get everything correct. So that's what I find interesting about the fact that I learn in the next call that I'm about to play you and that you're going to learn. So I hope you enjoy that. Um, Dad goes into a little bit of how things would have been different in this whole story if Jacob, the very first robbery of Jacob, if he had had that 50000 on him the, the, night, the night we robbed him and he had it with him the night before. Um, another fact that I didn't learn, so listen to last episode if you hadn't heard that. He also talks about what a, what an animal it is, uh, Ronco was, for going in to the Jewel Mart and just blowing him away. And I'll tell you that my dad will repeatedly say, there's no money in murder. And that's why it was never something that we ever considered. Not that we ever would. But if it ever got to a point where that would happen, I know my dad would say there's no money in that. My dad wanted money. And so there was no interest ever in actually ever hurting anybody. And why Ronco chose this route to take down Woody was probably because he knew him. But, I mean, geez, what a leap. I mean, you've got to be somewhat of a psycho before you ever make that decision, I would imagine. But uh, some revelations in this call. Um, 
And and really what's brilliant at the end of this call is you just hear my dad say, just keep your mouth shut. That's what his lawyer always said. His lawyer actually told him, my dad's lawyer said that the media will get the facts wrong and uh, be prepared for that. And when I sat with the lawyer after um, my dad was arrested, I saw a, a guy in Nashua and he sat me down. He says, you're probably going to have to move. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, when the media reports this kind of stuff, people tend to have to move away from the place that it happened because, you know, their life's never the same again. Now, that never happened. Um, but it's interesting that, that that's what the lawyers will tell you because they have experience with it. So check out these calls and I'm going to come back and wrap up um, or introduce. I will introduce the comedy video that I'm about to play for you. I got a little four-minute clip of me at the comedy studio. Uh, I don't think I do any prison stuff in it, so I just wanted to show you a clip of uh, how absolutely well-rounded a comedian I am. I can do stuff that's not prison. Just kidding. Uh, just a video I wanted to play for you guys. is one of my favorites, and, and there's some, some cool jokes in it, so I will come back and introduce that. So here is the second call with my dad. liked about Groton. Right. Because uh, one day I got up, uh, Chris says, then browbeat me. I want a house, I want a house, I want a house. I says, look, we're going to get a house. Let's get some land. So he took a map out and found Groton to go out there. And I just fell in love with the place. Found a five-acre lot, and I, I, was, I was sold. I know, Dad. It was labor camp. It was not a labor camp. I, I, tell, I tell jokes on stage <laughs> about the abuse. <laughs> The abuse that we went through, and Kev loved it, fuck him. He just got bigger from it. But I was scrawny, man. I was like, Mom, I struggled on those weekends, man. I struggled. Uh, just like the, the court I, the I, ancient room. I tell a joke where I say, uh, you know, I used to pull over because he'd like a rock, and he'd make me and Kev go out and get it. And I'm like, I didn't help my brother carry the rock. I just made sure dirt didn't fall in his eyes while he was putting it in the back of Dad's car <laughs> and brushed the dirt off his eyes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I remember those good, good days, good times, bro. Yeah, well, you says you. Uh, my hip sucks to the U, I think. That's, Rick kept wondering my, why the shock absorbers in the rear of my car had me replaced three times a year. And isn't that why you bought that yellow station wagon? That's why I paid for it, and I get every dollar's worth of that out of the car. How about this? Let me see if I can get this up real quick, because I wrote it down. Do you want a list of all the cars kept crashed? Uh, I remember the yellow and the blue days. <laughs> There's 15 of them, I think. Last time I checked, I was going to do an I don't know if I put it in the podcast, but I was doing the list because I was going to do just a whole podcast about why Kev wasn't the driver in the robbery. I'm surprised that uh, uh, he's not dead because of his low sugars in his driving. Remember, uh, was, it, was it the banana or the blueberry that he hit the, the drive-thru of a... Um... That was the banana. Okay. Mom, I, I had that. Mom drove him home. I uh, the doorbell rang. I opened the door. There's Kevin. There's Mom. I had no idea what that was going on. Did you ever? Huh? Did you ever know what the hell was going on there? Well, you guys kept it a pretty good secret, so no. Yeah, but even when you were told, you were like, "What?" You were easy to pull shit over on. I can tell you that. Sorry about that. I love my kids no, so much. <laughs> you don't apologize for it. Um, I can't find the list. It's somewhere in this notebook, but I might I might have to bring it back. Well, Mom didn't, it, it do that. Mom, didn't do, Mom didn't do too bad with my cars either. She took her to Pinto. She even uh, 
beat up that huge Buick Electra I had. All right, I got the list. You ready? Yep. Go. Do you remember the first car he stole when he was uh, he wasn't licensed yet? It was Chucky up the street, Chucky Hansopolis. Yeah, I remember that. Stole that one. He uh, crashed mem- Mum's Chevy Citation. Yeah. My Dodge Dart. Both of your station that. wagons. Jesus. Both of the, the banana and the blueberry. He crashed my Tempo. He crashed my Bronco. Um, he crashed your Riata. He ripped Mara off of it. His Sentra. Yeah, my Sentra. Jesus. I mean, <laughs> right? Now, the Massachusetts, Massachusetts has a point system. I think they just sent him a letter that said, you win. <laughs> he won the game. <laughs> To get his license back, we, I think we visited every D, uh, DMV yep. in Massachusetts. Yeah. Mom had to do that for me right a little bit. Right now, he's one hell of a driver. Yeah, I still don't believe that. You, uh, you just told me a story, and it's on the podcast, about he, how he back, he, he went into reverse by accident. How does that ever happen? On what? You said that he was in a van, and he backed up to somebody by accident. Oh, yeah, I got out of the car. Yeah. How do you yeah. put, your, how do you how put do you the car in reverse by accident? I don't know. He, he All right, well, that's not a good driver. I think, what, I think what happened is he put it in reverse and didn't realize it was still in reverse, and when it was yeah. time to go, he hit the gas. Still a bonehead move. Still a bonehead move, correct? I mean, it sounds like what he did to the Riata. Brian, I have done that. <laughs> I have not. I have done that. Here's what I do. I get out and forget to put on my emergency brake. I never put my emergency brake on. Well, I drive a st- I've never driven an automatic, though. I know you don't like them. Well, who, no, who can afford an automatic, man? Well, well, it's funny you should mention that we're getting, uh, apparently, there is a great demand now for my, my infinity. And they're quoting, some, they're quoting more money than I paid for it four years ago. Why? Why is a four-year-old Infinity in demand? Come on, think about it. It's a hell of a car, and they don't. Yeah, make but so you, the four, the new ones aren't. No, the new ones suck. The, uh, Funny, the I heard that about one. Audi too. Somebody yeah. said that about Audi. We got a we got a loaner, a QX50, I think it was. Man, that thing sucked, and they wanted huge money for it. I went right back to my car. I couldn't wait to get in my car. Have you driven a Range Rover? No. Why would I do that? I can't afford that. Because they're amazing. When I say amazing, Dad, it's just when you put a 10-cylinder motor in a car and then you just jazz it with all the bells and whistles, of course it's going to be amazing. But that would turn me literally into an OCD freak. It would be a bird would shit on that and it would ruin my day. That's why Kevin, he hates the car. So I don't want to own that, man. I don't want to own that. Like I told you in another call, I would rather have a nice watch on my then go out yep. to a shiny car that some dickhead just dinged. Well, you know, it's amazing. Is uh, Right now, Range Rover, two of their models have a terrible reliability problem. I'll tell you what, though. When, when my ex-girlfriend went to trade hers in, Dad, she got bank. Well, she got a check back from BMW. Well, what do you mean she got bank? <laughs> she got... It's, she got a lot of money for it. That BMW had to write her a check, so she went in, got a, a BMW. She had a I forget what model it was, but it was some some custom color. And when well, she went in to trade it in for an X5, their 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 super mm-hmm. I don't know what it's not their biggest um, SUV, but it's close. Um, she walked out of there with like a twelve grand check. I saw a video that says why are used BMWs 
so inexpensive. Sure. The reason was that they're so overpriced new. Yeah. They yeah. can just count the crap out of them. When they're did I tell you what they it. did, man? And I'm going to make a joke of this sometime that I have enough time on stage, but they bring you down into the basement, this this polished basement where they have a bunch of old uh, classic BMWs, like the one – I think they had a Porsche from, from Risky Business Day, which has nothing to do with BMW, but it looked like a classic car museum. Okay. And they have the car underneath a, a silk sheet. And they stand and they ask you, do you want to do you want to record this? Do you want to video this? And they have a bunch of staff people standing there and they slowly pull the thing off your car. It was the most. It, it was so uncomfortable. Like I just want. I walked away and I went back to the. I sat down, started reading the magazine like I didn't know her, because it was just ridiculous. It's like seriously, how ostentatious can you be? And if she listens to this podcast, boy, is she going to be pissed. But what the hell is the price range of the Range Rover? They start with at sixty. Range Rover, I couldn't tell you. I because if I look it up, I'll just get mad. But when I drove my clients in Colorado, it was one of those ones that looks like they took the big tall one and smushed it. Yeah, another one. And wow, Dad, this went zero to sixty. I went from one stop sign to the next, and I don't remember it. Yeah. A lot of uh, a lot of. <laughs> It was awesome. No, it was just a joy to drive. I don't mean that, you know, when you're in Kev's car and it snaps your neck back so bad that you end up, it's exhausting to drive that car. This thing was just wrapped around you. The steering wheel was like sex and it just handled amazing. It was just an amazing car. They still get a bad reputation for reliability. Yeah, I can't imagine many of them have good. I hear the same mm-hmm. thing about uh, Mercedes. Yeah, they're... Uh, I talked to a girl that bought one in Saugus. She, her father owns Angelo's. And she said oh, sure. that the, uh, the sunroof leaked first time no. she did it. So no. she brought it back to Range Rover, and they said, well, it's designed that way. And she what? thought, we're kidding. <laughs> but okay. it, it's designed to leak. Oh, yeah. Well, it, she, she says, don't buy one. Whatever I you ha- have you ever heard of Karma? Yes. So I have a client here that has their fat. It looks like the Batmobile. It's just so sexy. You want you want to get behind it and fuck it. Um, he's driving it the other day, and all of a sudden the radio just doesn't play. <laughs> and it's it, and then it's got to go sit in the dealership for you know a couple of days. They got to give him a loaner, and it it's happened to him multiple times. They forgot how to build radios. Um, I was in. I had to borrow. Um, Range Rover from Allison, their Range Rover, and that thing is an XLT like that, or the SVT or whatever the hell they the three letters are that jazz it up, and their audio is dead. What the hell's going on? Nobody That's knows a, how to a, fix it. It's a technology, bro. Right? It's a radio. the 1900s. Yeah, but they wire it through the muffler because uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? It's not so complicated at this point, and, and so... Uh, you got to keep costs down so much to make as much as they need to make. It's it's insane. That's they're like they're, they're the they're the jewelry dealers of automobiles. That is absolutely nuts. They forgot how to make a radio. Yeah. yeah. They forgot how to to pump audio into your car. I have a jet. It's, it's like the it's like the guy with the Dimex telling me, "Hey, my time is also the same time as your diamond Rolex." So. <laughs> who got taken my well, car got, still gets me where I'm going and I didn't pay 150000 for it and when it gets dinged I'm not going to have an ulcer 
Yeah, what's funny is uh, I had to have the uh, headlights replaced on the Infinity. They said uh, the, the plastic outside is starting to get yellow, so they're going to either redo it or under my extended warranty, they'll replace it. So I says, I'm curious, what would it cost me if I had to pay out of pocket? The guy looked at me and says, $4,300 to replace it. No. And they did. It's ridiculous. It's like medication here. Yeah. Um, so do you, uh, the Jewel Mart, remember Jewel Mart? They, in Burlington? No, before that. The reason why Burlington was so easy. And the Jewel Yes. Woody. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Do you, what do you remember about that? How did he become a target? Lawson used to sell to him. And uh, he says that he, he's a target. And as I recollect, we went in there. There wasn't enough in the showcase to pay off the people we needed to do it. I got it. Right. They looked like a pawn shop. Right, I remember. And the other part of the store was a uh, uh, flower. Flowers, yeah. I, yeah. I can see why he had flowers. <laughs> he probably made more in the flower. I uh, bet he did. Uh, that was ridiculous. That was another I almost bit slapped him. I remember that showcase. I was not impressed. Yeah. Uh, and so that had to be a good, goodly amount. The one that gets me is that uh, I wish we had the opportunity to hit Jacob that night. Number 54 in his briefcase. Jesus Christ, everything right. was different. I've never seen that amount of money. I have. <laughs> and it is very impressive. It's, it gives you I mean, I've seen it on TV, but I've never been in the same room with it. I have, and it's, it gives you a very warm feeling. Yeah, I Yeah, that... Uh, it's too bad. I mean, that guy was, was an animal. Just to walk up behind someone who's supposed to be your friend and put a bullet in the back of your head? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that part of the story. Like, when we walked away, and, and I remember we walked away because we sat and cased that place, and he never came out with his gun. But that morning, when we were supposed to hit him, yeah. he came out and he had a cannon. Man. What was that, a forty-five he had under his arm? Uh, I don't think so, but it was impressive. Yeah, and that right right then, and and I I imagine looking at the cases, but I couldn't even tell you what was in the cases because I think all I remember looking at was that piece, and then hearing that he had been killed. Yeah, that was. But how he was killed? He was in the back room. I don't know if he was doing something, polishing something. Guy just pulled his revolver up, shot him in the back of the head. What didn't Bill tell us? He was a friend of his. Yeah. Oh, I have the article. I have the article in the uh, both the articles that were written about it, and I read them on the podcast. And they say that, um, th and this is what's bullshit. This is what I think is hilarious. Um, after he went in there and shot him, um, they say that somebody was was suspicious. They didn't say that they heard a shot. They just said that they saw Ronco's car and thought it was suspicious. Took it down his license plate and called the cops. Does that no, sound like no, bullshit no, to you? No. Stop. What happened was a woman came in and says, is so-and-so here? He says, no, I'm, uh, I'm covering for him. What's, what's the problem? She has something, a repair, and he took care of it. And she got very suspicious because the guy's van was in the back and he wasn't supposed to be there. So why that, that's, not what, that's not what they reported. That's not true then. Right? Isn't that weird? Because yeah. cause they will part there. I still have articles of you and when 
we were sentenced, and there, there's a lot of those that aren't true. Yeah, the, the lawyer warned me about that. He says you're going to hear stuff that didn't happen. Keep your mouth shut. Right. <laughs> brilliant. He's brilliant. You pay him. Yeah. The uh, the district attorney says, "Oh, I met John and I, I liked him. I never met the guy." Yeah, who wife? Uh, yeah, I guess Howard wife. Yeah. So I never met him either. Okay, so now I'm just going to close out with a four and a half minute set that I did at the comedy studio, and like I've always told you, the comedy studio is near and dear to my heart because it's where I had my humble beginnings as a comedian when my comedic cherry was popped watch your plosives um gonna end with that guys uh geez what an episode man episode 16 interrogation room i hope i have delivered on what i have been thinking about and obsessing about since i started this podcast which was this conversation with detective sprinkle uh next week i am gonna do the littleton robbery so we're gonna get right back to the robbery format right back into the the fun the guns and fun and uh I will bring you that. Uh, enjoy the comedy. Uh, I hope to talk to you all uh, at some point on social media. People have been leaving comments. Uh, somebody from Iowa just uh, reached out to me on Facebook and said he was really enjoying it because he had heard me. He heard the interview that I did on the True Crime in Real Life podcast, the TCIRL podcast. So check that interview out if you haven't listened to it. And, and he reached out to me, and it's just great. So if you feel like it and you want to pop on to your interwebs and shoot Bri a note saying that you're enjoying it or any suggestions or anything like that, please check out any of the uh, Family Jewels podcast social media sites. Until next week, I am not sure if we have determined whether or not crime does pay, but we're one step closer, and I had a lot of fun with you guys. Thank you so much. Take care of yourselves and each other. Talk to you next week. Good, good friend and one of the best people in comedy. Let's welcome Mr. Brian Sobolewski. Another round of applause for Rick Soup, everybody. So uh, it took me a lot to get here tonight. I actually live on Nantucket now, and uh, it took a boat and a bus ride and then a car ride. And so I'm here. You're welcome. <laughs> now, if you've never been in Nantucket, it is it is the most expensive place on earth. Uh, the penny candy in Nantucket, three dollars. Three fucking dollars for a piece of candy in Nantucket. Uh, I went down there for the summer because uh, the summer goes from five thousand people in the winter to eighty thousand people in the summer, and uh, every single one of them are the richest people you could possibly ever, ever, ever imagine. Now, I grew up in Salem, so I went to Marblehead a lot, so I know rich people. But these were fucking rich people. Like, this is just stupid kind of money. Like, I would walk down to the harbor, and I would walk the harbor, and you would see these boats. And I'm talking about boats that literally looks like they took a three-story building and laid it on its side and then floated it on the water. And I would walk, and I would actually find myself getting upset because behind these big, monstrous yachts, was another boat tied to the big boat. And I thought to myself, you know what, there's rich, and there's fucking rich. <laughs> like, if you buy your new yacht, and you have to go to the boat store to pick up supplies, and one of the items on your list is another boat, <laughs> you have a lot of money. <laughs> and I don't have any. 
I went to I went to one of my clients' house and this guy owns a plane. Like he, a, he can pick up the phone anytime he wants. He can fly me fucking anywhere. So I, I'm at this place and I have to pee. He has a bathroom on the left side of the hallway and the right. In case you happen to be very right and get tired, you just go to that bathroom. So I go into this bathroom, I close the door, and I do my thing, and then at the end, I couldn't flush the toilet. There was no way to flush the fucking toilet. I'm thinking to myself, well, well what do I do? I'm not rich, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe you talk to it. So I said, flush. Because ladies and gentlemen, this is the universal sign for flush away. Go, urine, go. So I could, it didn't flush. So I thought to myself, well, this guy's really rich. Maybe you have to say flush in French. <laughs> you know, rich people like French stuff. So I Googled flush in French. It didn't work. So I got on my hands and knees and I really, so I started really feeling this toilet up. I was going to town. I, I actually started to get a little turned on. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Um, I found a little button on the side that, that you just hit. Turns out it was one of those ones that you just put your hand over. But I don't fucking know. Put some instructions on. <laughs> so I had, I had great, great clients. They were really, really nice people. And I had this one woman, this 73-year-old woman, that was just absolutely adorable. Very posh, southern accent. She was from Virginia. And 73 years old, and she was married to an 80-year-old. And I said to her, you know, well, you know, he's getting up there. Do you think you'll get married again? And she said, honey, instead of an 80-year-old, I'm going to get myself two 40-year-olds. So I said to her, I'm 40. And this is what she does. She looks me up and down and she says, honey, you better get yourself in shape because I like to go all night. Oh, don't judge me. I'll blow the dust off a 73-year-old. I don't give a shit. Can you imagine what that would be like? You'd be like... <laughs> I would totally wear a condom, though. I don't want to catch that osteoporosis. This <laughs> stuff doesn't sound pleasant at all. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to get out of here early, guys. Thank you so much. It was great to be back. I want to bring Rick back up. Have a good night, guys.